You might not know him by name, but my next guest oversees an operation that touches thousands of federal employees. He's also worked facilities, operations, and budget analysis across the government. Now he's among the new members of the National Academy of Public Administration. Byron Adkins joins me now. Mr. Adkins, good to have you with us. Good morning, Tom. It's great to be on the program. And so to dispel the mystery right away, you are the director of the Interior Business Center, and that is kind of the king of operations type of agencies with shared services across the government. Tell us what that's all about exactly. Absolutely. So we are a federal shared service provider recognized by OMB and OPM. First of all, we are a payroll provider similar to the National Finance Center. We pay about almost 300,000 employees across the federal government. That's the largest service that we provide. But we also provide back office HR, financial management, general ledger accounting. We do acquisitions, cradle to grave, as well as financial assistance. And then we also have moved into innovative with robotics process automation and enter into AI as well, if you can believe that as well. So we've been expanding some of our service offerings, but we provide anything that would be mission enabling functions for most agencies. Now, agencies are always saying IT is an enabler of their mission, but in many ways, your mission is IT. And so I guess I should ask the magic question, how's your infrastructure these days? Infrastructure could use a little work. It's an aging infrastructure, and there's a lot of opportunity for us to improve that and upgrade that, particularly from a user experience perspective. And so we are in a position where that could vastly improve and probably could use some significant investment. But we're working actively to improve that and to better our systems for our users. And how did you get to Interior Business Center from the earlier part of your career? I've been very fortunate. I actually was first introduced to the Interior Business Center when I was on a senior executive candidate development program, and I did a long-term detail there back in 2012. And so that's where I got bit by the shared services bug. And I was there almost a year, got to uh, meet with some very interesting people. Some of the folks that were working there are still actually there. And I really enjoyed it. It was so entrepreneurial. It was fee-for-service. You kind of eat what you catch. And I got bit by the bug. And so um, I took a couple of opportunities uh, working in facilities and construction for the Department of Commerce. And three years ago, I boomeranged back and was fortunate enough to land a director position. Right. So the same code is running that you saw, you know, a dozen years ago when you were there the first time. Unfortunately, uh, you know, they say when your infrastructure is older than your youngest employee, you need to replace it. And so we have that in some instances. All right. But this is kind of a theme of your background is operations, analysis, trying to make things operate properly. Tell us more about what you've done in the past. I know you served a stint at the uh, Army Corps of Engineers also. So I was a uh, a ROTC student years ago back at North Carolina A&T. So I actually commissioned into the Army Corps of Engineers and they give you this opportunity to select your branch. And I said, well, I'm an engineer by trade because I'm an electrical engineer. I should try the Corps of Engineers. Um, And I was thinking I was going to be doing some really sexy hydropower and dam safety or engineering construction. And unfortunately, all Army engineers start off as combat engineers. Uh, we call that uh, infantry with a shovel. Um, and so you, if you think about it, anytime you occupy a location, um, it doesn't necessarily have the necessary infrastructure, so roads and bridges and so forth, demolition. That's the type of work I was doing for the five years I was with the Corps Engineers. After I transitioned from there, I had the opportunity to work for the Research Development Command for the Army, now called the Army Future Command, working on counter-ID programs. Did that for about three years, and then I transitioned to the federal government working in budget and finance. And you were also at Agriculture in the Office of Operations. Did you happen to touch their business center? 
which I guess is complementary to the Interior Business Center. I did not. Besides them paying me every uh, two weeks, I did not have an opportunity to work within their business center, but I did keep the lights on for them. All right. We're speaking with Byron Adkins. He is the director of the Interior Department's Interior Business Center. He's also a new inductee to the National Academy of Public Administration. Tell us about the rise to senior executive service. I mean, those that enter the government young may have that aspiration. What does it take, do you think, in the long term? How do you build a career such as yours? You know, I've been extremely fortunate, and it may look like my career has been linear, but it's really been taking advantage of opportunities that have come before me. I mentioned the Senior Executive Candidate Development Program. That really accelerated my career and provided some opportunities. Um, And about 10 years ago was when I first entered into the senior executive ranks. And so really a lot of mentorship, um, a lot of uh, personal development and growth and being at the right place at the right time. I won't say I'm so smart that I got here on my own, uh, but opportunities presented themselves and I was able to kind of rise to the top there and been very fortunate to be here. And as you mentioned, you are an electrical engineer by education. So many people go to school with public administration degrees or whatever soft types of degrees. You got to senior executive ranks and you oversee you know a couple of thousand people that operate that center and from an engineering standpoint. So what's the better way, engineering and then learn public administration or come in with public administration and then learn what you need to do about engineering? Well, I'm a bit biased. I think I always say engineering provides a great foundation for any career. A public administrator can't be an engineer, but an engineer can be a public administrator. So I would say it provided a great foundation to work with teams, doing problem solving, which can be applied in a a number of careers. And so I definitely can say that I benefited from that. I do have an MPA and an MBA as well, but it was a good foundation for me. All right. So you're not that old, yet, actually. So what what do you hope to do long term here? You know, before I was called to lead, I was called to serve. And so I'm really looking for the opportunity to continue to serve and provide good government. This is why I love the Interior Business Center and the opportunity to not just serve the Department of Interior, but over 150 different agencies for mission enabling functions. Also, um, this opportunity with NAPA, um, it's a service organization that adds extreme amount of value to the the government and uh, looking to really participate in some studies and and better our government. And so that's what I'd like to do in the near future. Uh, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. And you mentioned there is probably some infrastructure updating that the Interior Business Center needs. There was recently a NAPA report that was pretty dire about the Agriculture's Business Center. And sometimes it seems manifest to the people there, gosh, we need this money to do this. But manifest doesn't mean Congress says, yeah, you're right. Here you go. You have some budget analytics background. You do have that engineering background. How can you bring that together to make a good business case for the dollars that instinctively you know are needed for these types of modernizings? Well, that's a great question, Tom. And we're actively pursuing that. A big piece of that is showing the data, showing the infrastructure that we have and and what can happen if we don't invest in this type of infrastructure. The other thing is that we're not going at this alone. Um, We have partnered with uh, the National Finance Center as well to figure out how can we help each other? How can we partner towards a solution, uh, recognizing that there's a finite amount of resources to make these large capital investments to replace the infrastructure? And when I talk about primarily, I'm talking about our payroll and personnel system, which is rather old and antiquated, but it works and it's secure. And so a big piece of that is is just getting a coalition of the willing and folks that can clearly see, hey, you do not want to have a situation where we cannot pay 
half of the federal government. How can we go about this to secure the funding and the capital investment necessary to make sure we can sustain operations? And so we're going about that in a number of different ways, particularly with the Shared Services Leadership Coalition supporting us and getting in the right rooms and spaces to request that type of funding. And not to put you on the spot, but should the government have two matching business centers, maybe one really super duper modern one could do the job that the two are doing now. You know, everything's on the table, Tom. You know, uh, <laughs> if, if someone's willing to support it and fund it, if we're still in a better place than we are now, um, that is uh, something that we floated around and a consideration uh, to figure out. And that's part of the partnership. You know, we also are in the process and have requested technology modernization funds and some of the, that was some of the feedback that they gave as well. Say, hey, both of you guys have requested funding. Perhaps we should look at this together and perhaps um, there's a single uh, source um, to provide payroll. So we'll, we, we're looking at all options here. Whoever's uh, going to provide some funding, uh, we'll, we'll consider it. All right. Well, there could be some exciting news then at some point down the line. Byron Adkins is director of the Interior Department's Interior Business Center, and he's a new inductee to the National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure, and welcome me back anytime. Thank you so much. All right. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. 
Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote. 
which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. 
And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.